Today we are going to look at the same section of Scripture that we looked at last week. Actually, I should say you looked at last week. I wasn't here. We looked at last week. Um, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. But last week we looked at it from the perspective of marriage. And Pastor Chris, I heard great things about your sermon. It's talking about marriage, love, and respect. And that comes right out of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And it talks about how Christian husbands and wives should interact and grow as, as Christian family. Well, today, we're going to look at the exact same verses, but I want us to notice what it says about the church's, our, you're a believer, you're part of the church, the church's relationship to Jesus. In other words, a little different, maybe this. We want to figure out, what does Jesus think about you? You know what? That, that is the, probably the most important thing you could ever come to terms with in your life. What does Jesus think about you. I think this is incredibly important um, because people seem, if I would talk to them and say, what does Jesus think about you? People tend to really go negative when they think about what God, how God views his church. Matter of fact, if you'd say, what does God think of the church in America? Most people would say, they would talk about the structural church and say, oh, the church in America is in trouble, the church in America is declining, you know, and they say, all the reasons, matter of fact, if you talk to me, I'd tell you that stuff. But what does Jesus, when he looks at the church, he looks at you and me, not just the structure of it, not numbers, just looks at us, what does he think? You know, I think a lot of times we go negative and we think somehow he's just frustrated and disappointed with humanity. And that's why people come up with these ideas like when a tragedy happens, oh, God did that to judge. Because their conclusion is God's just mad, generally mad at humanity. And he's frustrated and he's frowning. Often we think that God's up there somewhere, um, looking upon us with a big frowny face, you know, wishing that we would just try harder to be good. Isn't that kind of what people think all the time? Well, God, they think, well, he would just wish that we would just kind of try harder to be good. Well, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians paints a much different picture about God's view of us, God's view of his church. So let's turn to our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's read the same section from last week, Ephesians 5, 22 to 32. And let's read the section and find out what Jesus thinks about his church, about those of us who are joined together today at Port View. Remember, he's, talking, he's, he's making a comparison here. He's talking about Jesus and the church and husbands and wives, so it's all mingled together here. So it says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of, with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also um, to their love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Jesus also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is the, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you 
also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, as I said, last week you, you pulled out all the parts that had to do with husbands and wives interacting. Today we're going to pull out all the parts that have to do with the church and Jesus interacting. And I think you're going to be incredibly blessed by what you see when you understand what Jesus thinks about us. So we're going to break this section down kind of into two parts. And the first part's going to be the bulk of it. We're most of the time talking about the first part. And the first part we're going to talk about is Jesus' view of his church. We're actually going to look at three things kind of quickly that comes from the text, how Jesus views his church. And then in the end, kind of wrap it up, we're going to look at Jesus' vision for the church. So he's looking at the church and he's saying, this is what I think about you. We're going to spend most of the time talking about that. But then we're going to wrap up saying now, because he thinks it's about us, what is his vision for you and I? What's his vision for the church? So let's start with Jesus' view of the church. See, I think you may be pleasantly surprised by what Jesus thinks about us. Uh, in fact, the verses show us three ways that Jesus views his church, and all of them are positive. You imagine it? Jesus has positive thoughts about us. So let's pull the three out of the text and look at them. The first one is this. It says in verses 23 and 24 that Christ is the head of the church and the church is to be subject to Christ. Now we have those words being subject to, someone being the head, and sometimes we could get the idea that that's a a negative idea. And as a matter of fact, of the three that we're going to look at, this one could most likely be misunderstood and maybe seen as a negative. But where in fact, this is maybe the most positive of all of them. You see, often, while trying to understand a spiritual truth, which we're going to do this morning, we view things backwards. You know, um, what happens is we start with what we know about life and what we have experienced and we, so we know what do we know, then we read something about God, and we take what we've learned and what we've experienced, and we then place that upon God. Let me give you an example, because this ties completely to what we're going to look at with submission to Christ. For example, we read that God is our Heavenly Father, and often when we're trying to think of that, we're trying to figure out what it means for God to be my Heavenly Father. We begin to think about our own fathers or other fathers we have seen, And then we place that idea about God being a father upon our understanding of God. We take what we learn in the world and we place it upon God. You've got to understand something. That's backwards. We must always start with God and his example and then apply that to human interactions. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this section pertaining to marriage. If you notice as we read through it, what he was doing is he's using the illustration of Christ and the church as a way of explaining how a man and a woman should live out their Christian marriage. He's not trying to explain to us what it's like to be in relationship to him by saying, look at a husband and a wife. Because husbands and wives, we don't have it right all the time. You know, I always tell you, Suzanne and I got a great marriage, but it's not always even good. (laughs) Sometimes there's other words to describe it, you know. It's usually wonderful, but sometimes it's not. So you can't look at a human relationship and then apply that to God. That's backwards. We do it the opposite. What Paul's doing here, he's trying to talk about um, what, what marriage is like. And so he uses the illustration, the starting point of God and his church. 
And so we, we figure that out. So this is the same idea. We must apply then this idea of looking at this God using him and the church to talk about marriage. We use this idea, then we apply it to the idea of our submission to Christ, where he is the head and we are the body. We can't start with some example where some person forced someone else into submission. He's saying we must be submitted to him. We can't look at some person humanly who forced someone into submission and then apply that understanding to our understanding of what it means to be in submission to God. We can't look at like a Pol Pot from Cambodia who, who oppressed people or a Hitler in Germany and conclude that that's God's type of submission. That would be backwards thinking. No, we start with the character and the known activity of God and apply that to our understanding of what submission to Christ must be all about. So let's think about a time when Jesus revealed himself as an authority figure. He revealed himself, he actually says in the text, look at, I am Lord and teacher. He says, I'm an authority figure. He's authority over people. And let's see how Jesus plays out being a person who's in authority and other people are under submission to him. I think the greatest example, or one of the greatest examples of all the Bible of this would be found in John chapter 13. So let's flip our Bibles to John chapter 13. Here what we find is Jesus was eating his last supper with his disciples before his death. And after supper, he took off his good clothes and he takes a towel and a basin of water and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now let's read what he said when he was finished washing their feet. So John chapter 13, I think it also you have on the screen here. John 13, verses 12 through 17. It says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? He just washed their feet. You call me teacher and Lord. In other words, he's saying, You call me the authority figure. That you're, I'm in charge, you're submitted to me. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. If you do them. Now notice the first thing in this text. Jesus acknowledges that he is in charge. He is the authority figure. He says, I am teacher and I am Lord. He says, I am superior. Friends, Jesus is superior. Neither the disciples nor us in any way should ever feel equal to Jesus. He is the head he, and he is superior and we are subject to him. So we get that idea in humanity often that somebody's over us. But it's this next part that is where, the, where we're just amazing, where we can't use human illustrations because they never work this way unless they're in Christ. Where he says, the notice the next thing, as his superior, how does he react or treat those under his control? He serves them. He doesn't lord over them. He doesn't dictate them. He doesn't oppress them. He serves them. The headship and the submission relationship that Jesus models is not one of abuse or misuse um, or mistrust. It's a relationship where the head, the authority figure, cares for those under his control. Jesus models loving care as a servant leader master. 
That's what he's trying to get us. That's his idea of him saying, I'm head, your body, I'm in charge, you're under me. He said, I am a servant leader who loves and cares for those under my control. But then notice what it goes on to say in the text. He says, so I'm this. And then Jesus then says, I model this loving care for a reason. So that my followers will imitate my actions. That he says, I act this way so that then you will also become leaders who lead by serving, not by belittling or abusing or misusing. He says, that's the kind of leadership that I offer and the kind of leadership I want you to offer to others. So now let's take that idea and apply this back to Jesus and the church. Remember, it's all been an illustration. Apply it back to Jesus and the church. So here, when we find Jesus is head of the church and we are subject to him, we could read that and go, well, yeah, I know what it's like for my dad to be head of the family and he was a jerk. And so my dad wasn't or isn't. But you could say that and say, well, that must mean Jesus is a jerk as a leader. No. We take Jesus' example. We apply that to our human relationship. When we find Jesus is head of the church, we are subject to him. We realize what a wonderful thing that is. Because what we figure out is we live under the care and the protection of a loving God who leads by example. He protects us so that we can protect others under our care. And this is how he looks at you. He views you as a precious gift to be cared for. That's the first thing we see in Ephesians. How does he view the church? He views you and I, his church, as a precious gift to be cared for. We lovingly submit to his leadership because he lovingly supports and protects and blesses and cares for those people under his control. Now, friends, you can't get much more positive than that. When you think, how does God think of us? He looks at us and he says, you are a precious gift that I, God, want to care for and provide for and to protect. So that's amazing, isn't it? That's super positive. Now, that's the first thing. He says, what do I think of my church? He says, I see you as a precious gift to be cared for. But what else? He goes on. He doesn't just stop there. In his text, he goes on to say more things about how he views this church. Look at the next one. The next one is this. He views us as worth loving. Now, a lot of people in the world don't feel worth loving. He views us, you and me, every one of us, as worth loving. Look at, look at verses, um, chapter 5. Verses 25 and 29. Turn back to Ephesians. Look at verses 25 and 29. 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for the church. So he's trying to say, here's the example of God. I'm going to apply that to human relationships. But we're thinking of the relationship between Jesus and the church. He says, husbands, follow his example. Love your wives like, as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Now look at verse 29. It says, No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. How? By example, just as Christ also does the church, nourishes and cares for the church. Look at the action words used to describe what Jesus does for his church. It says he loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. He nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. You realize what he's saying? God himself says he gave himself up for you. 
He died so you could live. God himself nourishes and cherishes you. He supplies what you need and he looks upon you as valuable. He cherishes his church. Friends, he is saying that his church is worth loving. His actions speak. He has immense value for his church. Think of that next time you have this image in your head where you think God is in heaven frowning at you. He's not. He says here that he says the church is worth loving. It's worth loving. He goes through all his things. He cherishes and worships and nurtures, nurtures and cares for his church. He's not frowning. See, the next time the devil whispers into your ear things like this, you're just worthless. Or no one really cares about you. Something happens in your life and, and maybe you don't tell anybody about it. Something happens and you know, you're sick or ill and you say, well, if, if anybody really cared about me, somebody would have come. But nobody even knows that it happened to you. you know, and you think, God, you don't even care about me because if you cared about me, you would have talked to somebody and they would have came to me. The next time that happens, you did, that's the devil lying to you. He whispers that in your ear. You don't want you to do. I want you to stand up. I want you to shout at the devil. You need to say, "Devil, you're wrong. Jesus loves me. The scriptures say He gave Himself up for me. He nourishes and He cherishes me because I am the church. Church, Jesus views us as worth loving. Now you can't get much more wonderful and positive than that, can you? Jesus views you as worth loving. The world tells you you're worthless. The devil tells you you're worthless. Jesus says you're worth loving. So so much so that he says, I will cherish you and nurture you and care for you. Now there's one more thing he says in this text uh, that I want to point out about how Jesus views his church. It's this. And I think this one could be the one that, it, that I've been wrestling with for years, honestly. Trying to... Really say, God, help me to understand this, because it's just, it's just beyond amazing. And it's this, he says in the text, that he sees us as one with him. He sees us as united together with him. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we understand that because it's talking about the physical union between a husband and a wife. And we, so we talk about that. It's talk about you know the physical connectivity that a husband and a wife has, and it's supposed to be sacred, and it's only for a husband and wife. But look at verse thirty-two. He's he's using that to say, whoa, whoa, there's something more between us. Verse thirty-two. This mystery is great. But look what it says next. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's talking about the union that we think of with husband and wife. And he's thinking, but I'm saying that that's the kind of union that Christ has with this church. He is talking about a great mystery where we are actually, literally, somehow joined together with Christ. We are somehow joined into the loving union of the Godhead, of the Trinity. When Jesus views his church, he doesn't see something as out there. Something separate from himself. And that's how we see it a lot of times. Like, we're, God's up there and we're down here and there's this great separation. He doesn't see it as someone that, 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 that we're something out there, something separate from himself. He sees us as united with him, inseparable. He says in verse 29, it's like his own flesh. 
And that's why he nourishes and cherishes us and cares for us. Friends, there is a spiritual union between Christ and his church. And understanding this, and I say at least trying to understand this, because I've been trying to wrap my head around this for years, literally, trying to say, God, how can that be? How does that work? Trying to understand this has incredible implications. It takes away any idea that we are limited, or we are valueless, or we are alone, or we are faced with scarcity. All of that is and has, we have all of the things we need because we have access to everything He is and has because we are united with Him. Somehow we are grafted in with Jesus, into the Trinity that He is part of. Paul uses the term to try to describe this. He uses the term over and over to try to say this. He says, you are in Christ. He's trying to explain it. You're connected organically somehow. He says, in Christ we are, what, seated in heavenly places. We looked at that in Ephesians many, many months ago. That we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. We're organically joined with Christ. In the Gospel of John, and I had no idea Susanna's going to read the Gospel of John today. As she read it, I literally said to the kids, I said, I'm using that same verse today. Um, that in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes to great lengths to reveal this exact point of this unity, this, this connectivity. In fact, the theme, read this later today. Read chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Of John, You know, sometimes we make the mistake that we, we just read little one or two verses at a time and we miss a big picture. Just read chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Gospel of John today. And you're going to see there's this common theme. This common theme of him trying to say, I am in you and you are in me. We are organically connected. Just listen to a couple of the verses from that section. John 14, 20. And these will be on the screen. John 14, 20. It says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This connection, this mystery of connectivity. Look at John fifteen four. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. John seventeen twenty one. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may believe in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, you are in me, and I am in you, and they are in us. That's, he's trying to talk about this connectivity that they have between Jesus and the church. Do you see it? There is this spiritual union between us and God. God does not view you as separate from himself. He does not view you as distant. Even if you're being the prodigal and you're running away, if you really know Christ, he doesn't see you as separate and distant, but as one united with him inseparable. See, friends, salvation isn't about joining a church. That's a misconception the church world's created. It's not about somebody doing something to you. They baptized you, sprinkled water on you, or they, they communed you, or whatever, or you went to, you know, whatever. What it means, it's about being united with God. 
It's about being transformed by His abiding presence in your life. So He doesn't see us as out there. He sees us as in here, in His heart. Somehow we are grafted into the reality of the Trinity. Colossians 3 says it this way, We are hidden in Christ in God. One of my favorite verses, I I pray that every day, that I'm hidden, remind, remind me that I'm hidden with Christ in God today. Joined with Christ as He is joined with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Friends, that ought to inspire us. That ought to empower us. That ought to heal any of our brokenness. When we know that we're not alone, we never have lack. He's always here with us and not just saying, here, help me. He's actually united with us. So how does God view us according to to Ephesians 5? He views us as a precious gift to be cared for. He views us as worth loving. And He views us as united together with Him. Now, based on that reality of how God views His church, we then see in Ephesians that God sees us how we are and he says, and I have a vision for what you're to be and do. The church, friends, in a sentence is this. He sees us as this wonderful thing and he says, you know what, here's my plan for you. His vision for the church is that he is perfecting us by Christ so that we can be presented to Christ. That Jesus is perfecting us so that he can present us to himself. In verse 25, it says that Christ gave himself up for the church. Right? Then verse 26, look at it, begins, so that. He gave himself up to the church, so that. So he gave himself up, so that, for the purpose of what? It says, of sanctifying, which means making the church become more like Jesus. Purifying the church. And then verse 27 explains this more. Explaining that Christ's Say, um, sanctifying work will result in a church, what's it say? Without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. We used to sing a chorus about that, right? We're the glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Some of you remember that? that you, don't, you don't remember that one. That was a great chorus. I don't know if you can resurrect that one. It's probably not a good one to resurrect. It, but it's a great message. It's saying that his sanctifying work, he is creating a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, blameless. And the point he is making is that because Jesus loves his church, he is helping the church to be sanctified, to grow in Christ like this, to become more holy, which means more whole. That's what holiness means. To be more whole, more complete in Christ. It's not about imposing rules and regulations. It's about freeing us from the chains of sin and setting us free to become who God created us to become. Jesus is helping us to become whole, Christ-like. He wants us to live the good and beautiful life of freedom from sin's domination. He sees what we can be, and he partners with us then in transforming us into holy and blameless people, in people who are more like Jesus. And he says this for a reason. He does all that work in us to make us for a reason. It's this. His ultimate vision for us. Verse 27. So that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. He loves us. He went through great lengths in this section to say three ways. How God views us. And he says, because I view you this way, I'm making you holy. 
And the reason I'm making you holy is so that someday I can present the church to myself. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, I am helping you become holy so that I can present you to myself. It's like he said, I'm giving myself a gift. He's preparing us for himself to live in eternal union with his church forever and eternity. He's looking to eternity, to the eventual, completely realized union between himself and the church together forever in glory. Friends, that's his vision for his church. Not building buildings. This is fine doing renovations, but that's not his vision for the church. It's becoming part of becoming unified with Him in a complete manner for all of eternity. That's what you become part of when you are in Christ. That's your secure future when you walk with Jesus. Jesus is making us beautiful. In preparation, He describes us as a bride, because brides are beautiful. White dress, beautiful. He's saying, He's describing us, He's making us beautiful in preparation of Him being eternally unified with us, where we are unified and fulfilled and free and complete. Friends, that's the church's great future. Friends, I can tell you, when we get a hold of this, that's a life worth living. That's worth dying for. You say, you look at people for all of history who have martyred, given their lives for the faith, you say, why would they do it? Because this life, when you get it of being unified with Christ, is not only worth living for, it's worth dying for. It's worth putting the things of the world aside for and saying, but this is so much greater. And I would just tell you this as we conclude today. If you've not yet ever come to that place of saying, Jesus, I want you to be my all in all. Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'd simply ask you this one question. Why not? Why wouldn't you? When this is what he thinks about you, and he's doing this great job of setting you free from, from destruction and sin and, and failure. And he's doing it so that he can prepare you to live with you eternally in bliss. Why in the world wouldn't a person come to Jesus who's doing that? He has such a beautiful life for us today and an incredible future for us tomorrow. And I just tell you this, you can run to him today. You can ask Him to receive you. You can welcome Him into your life. And you can, make, you can ask Him, Lord, come and make me your own today. You know, maybe you've done that already. At some point in your life, you're really serious about it. But you kind of drifted a bit. You can run back to Him today. He never says, well, let me consider. Do I want to receive you back? He never does that. He stands with arms wide open and says, Come. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, he starts off by talking about surrender, living under his umbrella. We can surrender to his loving um, leadership and caring transformation today because he, we can trust him because he thinks you're awesome. That's what Paul says about the church and Christ. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray together. Father, what a picture of who you are. What a picture of your, what you think of us. Lord, if I look at me in the mirror, I don't think the same thing you think. When I look at me in the mirror, I see failures and I see faults and I remember the past. 
But you say in your word, which is much more true than my perception, that when you see us, God, you see people that are, are wonderful. You see people that are, that, are, um, that are worth loving. You see people that are precious gifts to be cared for. You see people that are not separate, but they're united with you. And so, Lord, with that vision in mind, that you see us as this beautiful bride, that you're, you're making us more pure and more holy as we surrender to you. Lord, I pray this report in church. I pray that as we continue to go day by day, month by month, year by year, and that as we continue to, to give our lives to you because we trust you, Lord, we ask that you would continue to transform us. You continue to make us more beautiful, more Christ-like. That, Lord, the things of the world would slip away because we recognize they're not worth it. And all we would see is this desire to walk in this unity with you. That, Lord, that would be that beautiful thing we're becoming, that beautiful church we're becoming, would just radiate the darkness and would draw people to you. So that, Lord, so that the, the group in eternity is so huge we can never imagine. Because they're drawn to your goodness. Lord, use us as a flame in the darkness in this community, in our families, amongst our friends, amongst our co-workers. Let your reality of your transformation be so real as we rest in your love that, Lord, you do amazing things. Father, we will pray this prayer. And as we surrender to you, that Lord Jesus, you would help us see ourselves the way you see us. And you would help us go on a path that is going towards the future. Thank you for that.